Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast with your host, The Mindful Investor. Hello and welcome everybody to a new episode of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. It's Aurelien, The Mindful Investor. I'm here with Artie who kindly joined us. So I'm going to start by reading, uh, uh, saying a few words about Artie's bio. So Artie Shah grew up in Rockford and moved to Chicago to pursue higher education. Ms. Shah earned her bachelor's from DePaul University and went on to earn her MBA from the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. Ms. Shah's 10 plus experience spans in healthcare administration, finance, and consulting. Prior to her employment with First Midwest Group, she worked in financial valuation for four years at Deloitte and two years in healthcare consulting at Chartis Group. At first, Midwest Group, she's the director of operations and focuses on real estate and operational growth of a variety of businesses. Her key accomplishments include development of over a million square feet of self-storage and has grown a residential portfolio, the residential portfolio to 400 units. So thank you so much, Artie, for being on the show. No problem. Thank you for having me. So let's dive a little bit into uh, so you have a very interesting career and uh, so you've done healthcare how did all of this um, how does this all help you today in your real estate uh, endeavors yeah so you know i took an untraditional path to real estate i started my my career in finance which has been great because that's a great background to have as you're looking at real estate deals then i went into consulting so i got my mba full time from a top 5 um, university and really worked hard to build my network. So now that's helping me as I look for investors and potential real estate deals. Then I went into consulting, which really teaches you the overall, you know, looking at the overall image, like a deal may look good, but what's the surrounding look like? How's the town looking? What's the demographics look like? Is there growth? Is there negative population growth? I mean, that all those qualitative factors also play a part in a real estate deal versus just the quantitative, what you see in a performa. So that consulting really helped me with that. Um, so I think my background was very was very diverse, but it's only it's helped me build the network and it's also helped me build the skill set to look at a deal holistically versus just take a deal based on what an OM offers. Yeah, I see. Okay, very interesting. And uh, so you've developed over a million square feet of self storage. So let's dive a little bit into this for a moment. So. First, it's a uh, it's big box conversion, so that's interesting. So I, I find it always fascinating, you know, when when you are in transitions, and and some may look at it in a negative way, but others see opportunities. So, what are the criteria when you pick uh, when you choose a, a big box to convert? So you want to ensure first, it's like any other deal. You want to make sure there's not a ton of competition, you know. Like, so I'm not going to go and build you know, 50,000 square foot of stealth storage when there's a U-Haul across the street or a new one coming, you know, five blocks down, you know, self-storage, you still want to be, you know, it does get saturated, right? And it does get competitive. So you want to make sure that if you're building it in a big box, you have limited competition because if you're going to go buy a big box, there's not many other uses, right? Like it's hard to find someone who's going to fill a hundred thousand square foot place right at this point in this in today's environment. So if you're going to go and look at it, you really want to study the market, then it's a big, it could be a big uphill battle with the city. 
you don't know what's going to happen if the city wants city doesn't usually like having self storage because they don't get a tax revenue on it. So they kind of, you know, they're, you know, they're not happy about it, but you know, the play that we always do as a development company is we'll put self storage, but then we'll also use the parking lot for outlots, you know, and we'll build, we'll get you tax revenue, you know, so give us the back and we'll give you some in the front, you know, so that's kind of how we play it. But you really want to look at the market. You want to see how friendly the city is. Because if those two things don't work, it's not worth it, no matter what price you get the big box for. Because mm. it's really hard to find other uses for that. Okay, I see. And uh, how did you come across the idea of converting, doing those conversions? You know, honestly, I didn't come across the idea. I, you know, worked for a development company. And, you know, CEO himself did the first deal on an old Kmart. And then ever since that, we've been looking at, you know, old Kmarts or even some targets have to close down back in the day, you know, or move locations. And we've looked in those centers too. Awesome. And yeah. um, in which part do you do that and why? So we do that all over the U.S., but mainly we're focused in Illinois. Okay. So we have a few that we've already done in Illinois. Um, and so we, you know, we've even looked at old Toys R Us and things like that as well. Um but I'm telling you, honestly, it, the track, it's very become very competitive because everyone's kind of picking up on this. Mm. So you'll see now when there's a vacant grocery store or vacant Kmart or something goes up, they'll write in like the main header of the OM, like self-storage not approved by the city. So okay. you don't even like think twice now to like pursue it, right? Like that's how common this like conversion has become. Interesting. And uh so you convert those big boxes into a self-storage? Yeah. And what does the conversion process involve in terms of development? And uh, so what do you need to do to the, to the big box? Yeah, so if you look at these big boxes, I mean, they've kind of been vacant for many years, right? So the inside is just a mess. Like the roof needs to be redone. There's usually like a mezzanine. So there's a lot of demo work that needs to be done. You have to like epoxy the flooring you know, you're going to also have to, you know, put new ceiling tiles and just put new lights. Like, it's really just like a complete indoor rehab of a big open space. Mm. Right. And then the nice thing about self-storage is once you get the inside ready, there's a, there's companies out there that not only bring the building materials for you, but they also bring a labor, like a force of labor and they build out these kits. So you sign a contract and they'll do both. Oh, you know, so the, that, no, so that's really like a really easy process once you have the interior finishes done. Okay. And then the people drive up to their individual storage units or how does that work? No, they park their car in the parking lot and they walk to their, because this is indoor storage. So, so there's outdoor storage, which is drive up and there's indoor storage, which they park like you would park in a normal parking lot or there's bay doors on some entrances that you can like kind of some, you can like back up a truck to it, mm. you know, and then open it. So it's easier in the winter to unload and load. Okay. And uh, can you talk to the numbers uh, when you, when you do so, such conversions, like high level? Yeah. So the way the rule of thumb is like the kits can cost like about 15 to $17 a square foot. And it's all dependent on the steel prices. Steel prices go up, those prices go up. Mm. Um, so like that's one component of cost. The other component is how bad is it on the inside? Mm. 
Now, if you have to do the roof, you have to do everything else. It could be 70 bucks a square foot to do the inside, you know, but it's still cheaper because they're usually selling the big box, like the out exterior shell at a discount, you know, so you're still coming out ahead because if you had to build a hundred thousand square feet interior and then build the kits, it would cost you a lot more. So like it's below replacement cost, even if you have to do some extensive work inside. Okay. And uh, how do those uh, units rent for? I guess so an average, like let's say 10 by 10. So that's like a hundred square feet, right? They rent for like 125 in the Illinois market okay. a month, right? So it can really like range. Um, I mean, a 10, like a 20 by 30 can rent for like 275, 300, you know, okay. so. And usually how many can you, how many, what's the unit mix you, you pick and how many do you squeeze into a 100,000 square foot uh, building? It really just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Like in some demographics, you they want bigger units than the smaller units. You know, like if you're in a college town, you know, you try to make more like 10 by 15, 10 by 20 units because mainly your market is people moving out for the summer, you know, wanting to store their stuff. And then they take some stuff, they keep their thing all year, you know, or some people don't keep it all year. So like, it just depends on the demographics. So like, if you're thinking like, if you have about 40,000 square feet or 50, if you're building half of a Kmart, usually Kmarts are about 80 to hundred thousand square feet. You could fit about what, 200 units, depending on like the unit mix. Okay. So, um, okay, well, thank you so much. And um, so, you do also self storage ground up development. Um, uh, and then, you know, the overall question is why self storage? What's the what do you like about this asset class? Yeah, I think the thing I really like about self storage is it's very low operational headache. You know, like you think about multifamily and you're dealing with tenants regularly, and if there's a leak, you take care of it, if the toilet breaks, you take care of it. Here, people kind of come and go. I mean, you'll have people that you can just rent them something online. You know, they'll like sign a lease online. They don't pay rent for 60 days. I put it up for auction. You know, like I have one guy that can, you know, manage a thousand units for me. One guy. You know, there's not a lot of maintenance issues, right? So like it's actually pretty low overhead and low operational headache, which is why I like it, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and I think the other thing about it, it's semi-recession proof. If you think mm -hmm. like people like can't afford their houses, they move into apartments, they downsize. Well, they don't want to let go of all their stuff right away. So they put in storage, you know? Yeah. Okay. And, um, so in terms of, so you've mentioned, uh, people downsizing students, do you have specific demographic, target demographics? Um, you want, you definitely want to be like the ideal places that self-storage would be awesome, but it's way too expensive would be indoor self-storage in like Florida because people don't want to keep their stuff in the heat, right? Mm. So they can't, you know, like in the Midwest, we can put our stuff in the garage and use our garage as storage. Well, in Florida, you can't do that. There's certain things like you don't want to keep it in 110 degrees, right? So a climate controlled storage would do great. So like the rents in Florida are like two and a half times what they are in Illinois. Mm. 
So in terms of the demographics, I think the warmer climates bode well for self-storage and you have a lot of bigger return. The fact of the matter on the other things such as um, other demographic areas that help are just people that have, you don't wanna go into places where there's low income, you know, because they can't afford, they don't have that disposable income to afford a storage unit. Mm-hmm. Right. So you want to go like median household in- income is about 45, 50,000, you know, at the minimum. You know, if you go somewhere that's like an 80, 90,000, I think you'll do well because they always have some extra stuff they want to put somewhere. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, very, very useful information. Um, so I know you have some um, uh, expertise in CBD tenants in commercial. So what are the trends you observe in that? Uh, in that so, um, so CBD tenants are unique. Um, they are they can't get bank financing. Mm-hmm. So, um, because it is still illegal federally, they have to pay everything through cash, check, or private investors. So it really changes the the whole schematics. They're not a usual uh, regular tenant, but their ability to pay is strong because their margins are so high in the CBD market that they're like very, they're, they're great tenants to have. um, If you have a marijuana shop or you have a cultivation. Now, I don't know about the CBD hemp market, but I'm talking about a straight marijuana dispensary or marijuana cultivation. If you had like an industrial type of space, Mm -hmm. they're very strong tenants and they sign like a 10, a 10-year lease because once they get that location is approved by the state, it's hard to keep on moving it. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, so in terms of retail, uh, what makes for a good tenant mix if you have one of those tenants? So usually people like national tenants sometimes don't want to be there next to them um, because of the image or whatever. Mm. But we usually like putting a marijuana shop you can, and sometimes a liquor store next door, a restaurant, you know, so that's kind of like, you kind of have all your vices in one area, you know, um, but in the grand scheme of it, a lot of marijuana shops just like being a single tenant building, right? So you, if you have any single tenant buildings, they'll take it because they want the parking and depending on how, if there's like a limited state license or a multi-state license, the demand could be really high. So we there's like a location that we have that's on a border of another state and that other state doesn't have any marijuana shops. So like that location just goes crazy. And so we had to really expand the parking lot mm-hmm. because it is just like, you, if you don't have parking, they're gonna drive by. So we had to spend a lot more money on the parking lot than you would have on any other single tenant building. Interesting. Yeah, I guess. Uh, so what's the legislation in Illinois regarding? Uh, it's own? limited license. So you have to um, apply. Okay. But they only offer like X amount of licenses. Um, so right now there'll be a total, right now there's only about 250 licenses in the entire state. Versus like Oregon, everywhere there's a license. So okay and um okay on another topic so i i understand you work for a family office yep 
And um, so what is, uh, can, you, can you explain for the audience what a family office is? Yeah, so family office is a, a individual, you know, an individual or a family or through a family history, they've acquired wealth. So big, big people, like, you know, big famous names would be like the Pritzker group. They had Hyatt hotels and they acquired a lot of wealth through that. So they have their own family office. I work for someone who developed a lot, a lot of their family wealth through commercial real estate. Mm. Um, so now they have enough wealth to do other investments that are just not real estate. So when I say I manage a family office, it's I manage the other investments. So there's operational businesses where like multifamily, self-storage, senior housing, those type of um, asset classes come into play. But we not only own the real estate, but we also run the operations for that. Okay. But then there's also other investments you do, and we call those more passive investments. So those are in venture capital, private equity, and we do those globally. So if you're doing a startup in Africa and it's you know doing well, we have fund managers that will reach out to us, say, hey, listen, there's this new startup happening. Do you want to get in early? And so we just, you know, we'll, we'll deploy potentially some capital over there. Wow, that seems uh, yeah. quite interesting. And um, how did you end up working with the family office you, you work with? Um, so I've known, I know the CEO, I've known him for quite a long time. Um, so when I was after business school and after I was done with a few years of consulting, I reached out to him and actually said, hey, are you looking for anyone to join you? Um, and that's kind of what I did because consulting is a great career, but there's a lot of traveling and it can get very exhausting. Like you're on the road all the time. Mm. And this was this was a good fit because like I've been there now for seven years and it's just, you get to see the whole holistic image. So you get to do some private placement investments. You get to see commercial real estate. You get to see operational businesses. So you kind of get to see a little bit of everything and put it all together. So, wow. yeah. And um, so how do you have them uh, how do you help them on a day-to-day -day basis? How does it, how does it look like? Yeah, so day-to-day, -day, so I handle all the operational businesses. So self-storage, multifamily, senior housing, all of those businesses fall under me. There's managers at each level. They report up to me. So that's like 50% of my time is managing those. 25% of my time is doing new development. So I, you know, will find sites and do new outdoor self-storage development or indoor self-storage development. And then that there's a construction company that's in within our company that will report up to me and we'll do development meetings for that. And then the other 25% is speaking to potential like people who are syndicating deals or investors or looking for money and, you know, will vet deals that are more passive. So that's kind of the structure of my overall work. Okay, nice. Yeah. Um, and are there, do you have some long-term goals you want to share with us? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's one day using all of my skill set and, you know, launching something of my own okay. would be a long-term goal. You know, I think, you know, I've been able to develop a good foundation of knowledge and a strong network. And so I think, you know, um, when I have a little bit more time on my hands, I would like to kind of take that leap of faith and risk and start my own. Okay. And uh, so the commercial real estate uh, arena is, uh, is quite uh, male dominated. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't, you know, I think all of, you know, I think multifamily may not be, but I think even ground up development is male dominated, right? Like I'm dealing all my construction managers, my project managers, 
the guys that are pouring my concrete, right? Right. Like I'm the only girl out there. Right. So I, I think it's, you know, you have to just be on top of your game and you also have to be on top of your numbers. I mean, if you're not on top of your numbers and on top of your game, everyone's trying to, you know, pull a fast one. Right. So I think it's just having the confidence and doing your homework before you get into any situation, you know, that helps you just, you know, beat out anyone doesn't matter about what if they're male or female, but if they have more money than you or not more money than you, you know, they're, you just have to be the smarter one on the table. Awesome. Okay, Arti, well, thank you so okay. much for uh, being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all your, uh, your wisdom and all your knowledge. And um, yeah. Thank you. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This has been the Commercial Real Estate Podcast with your host, The Mindful Investor. Thank you for tuning in. And for more information, visit themindfulinvestor.com dot net.